The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, everybody. This is Joni Siegel, and this is the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. And this is episode number 111. I'm in the studio alone tonight because Jason is out there helping addicts get into recovery. So we have an interview tonight. Tonight, we are going to be talking to a fellow who reached out to us on Facebook. His name is Jay Schiffman. And Jay has his own story of addiction and treatment and Jay is now nine years sober, and he wants to tell his story to maybe help others who are going through addiction. So let's get Jay on the phone. So Jay, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your willingness to share your story with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, um, I'm a big fan. I've been listening for Oh, a while now. And I just think it's so, it's so incredible that this podcast exists and it gives people like myself a chance to, a chance to tell our stories, which is, you know, as we, as we seek to reduce the stigma around mental health and addiction, it honestly takes this sort of thing to, to even make a dent. And so, you know, what you're doing, what this podcast does is, is so incredible and so necessary and so appreciated. Well, thank you. It's, that's really nice of you to say. And, you know, when you tell a story like you're going to do today, it's going to resonate with somebody. You know, there are a lot of people that listen, and I don't know how many of the people that listen are struggling themselves with addiction or they're more friends and family of those struggling with addiction, but... Um, Every story that gets told on this podcast, I know resonates with someone. So I'm excited for you to share yours. Thank you. And, and you, you could not be more right. I, um, I, I do this a lot in, in terms of telling my story, because like I said, I, I think it's so important that I, I take every opportunity I can to, to talk about it, partly because uh, in all honesty, I, when most people think of, of someone who is um, in recovery, they don't think me, you know, I grew up um uh, with means, and I, I don't look like your stereotype, and so that's why I think it's so important. And one time, uh, just very quick antidote, I uh, was telling my story at a, at a TED uh, sort of event, and after I got off stage, that the, it was uh, the manager came over and said, "Hey, would you mind coming back into the kitchen real quick?" And I said, "Sure." And he brought me back there, and every single person in the kitchen was in recovery, and we ended up just sitting there talking and and. Uh, to say that there were tears would be an understatement. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Well, so start at the beginning. Tell your story. How did you get started um, on the road to addiction? So, you know, my story isn't uh, the one that, that I think many of your listeners hear often. Uh, I know I don't miss an episode and I don't hear one like mine that often. Um, Mine it didn't begin with, with illicit drugs. It actually began, like, like some others, uh, when I was a preteen and I was prescribed uh, Ritalin for the first time. I was rambunctious. I was having trouble fo- uh, following the teacher. Um, I was that, that student that always fell off his chair trying to make other people laugh. That, that was me. Um, and I, I was put on Ritalin, like many people in my generation. Um, and this was, I, I'm, I'm 30, about to be 33, so this was the prime era of, of sort of ADHD medications. 
so was put on Ritalin, and by the time that was when I was like 11 or 12, and by the time I was in my teens, mid-teens, I was on, you know, I I'd tried two or three or four different types of ADHD medications. Um, and then in, in, at that age, I did like many, many kids do, and I experimented with, um, I smoked weed for the first time, uh, had a couple of drinks, nothing serious. Uh, in fact, um, I was a baseball player. I was very proud of that. Uh, I was also a cross-country runner. And so by the time I got to high school, I actually stopped altogether every, every uh, you know, quote-unquote illicit drug, uh, including drinking and, and smoking weed. So the only drugs I took in high school were the ones prescribed to me by my doctor. Right. But, but um, by this time, in my, in my um, mid to late teens, my longtime uh, therapist had said that I was starting to show signs of a mood disorder. And that was obviously very... Uh, startling for my family. Um, we do have, have issues of mental health in, in our in our background, but nothing, um, you know, nothing that we were really prepared to, to encounter. So uh, by by my late teens, um, I had, you know, been on every ADHD medication on the on the market. Um, and we also, you know, we, my generation was not really, as you know, very well, we didn't really talk about this stuff. Right. So the fact that I was was told that I had a mood disorder, it wasn't like I could go to school the next day and be like, hey, man, like I just was told this. And I had friends. I had a family that loved me very much. And, you know, I definitely felt that uh, this was something I had to keep to myself. So, Jay, I'm going to stop you college, for one second. So, sure. so you're a teenager. OK. And yeah, a you're already on a bunch of different medications. B, you have hormones like every other teenager so what exactly yeah. did quote mood disorder unquote mean so i'm so glad you asked that <laughs> uh, now now we know that you know when, when a kid is put on drugs that early their brain doesn't get, have a chance to evolve and grow in the way that it's supposed to mm -hmm. i was so flooded with chemicals it's it's not surprising that, you know, as you just pointed out, your teens are a tough time on your brain and your body anyway. Right. And I'm on high doses of very, very strong medication on top of that. So uh, it, it, it for me, you know, it was definitely, oh, man, I, I can remember uh, some, some kind of highs and lows that you get with, with that sort of thing. So um, there were definitely some depression episodes. Um I, I wouldn't go as, as far as to say that I had mania because I, I had that later, um, which I'll obviously get to. And that, that didn't really happen in my teens, but I definitely was very moody and not in the let's listen to Death Cab and, 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 you know, cut our bangs sort of way, but in, in a very you know, real way. Um, but I also, you know, I, I really I'm so glad you made that point. I, I was a teenager. <laughs> I'm like mood disorder. I mean, I had a mood disorder and I wasn't on right. any drugs, you know, so it's like, right. oh, my goodness. What teen doesn't go through some sort of mood disorder at some point? That's all I'm trying to say, you know. And, and you make a great point. I honestly think that and I've actually made this point to someone I coffee with this morning. It is it, it, it makes me sad that in our schools. We have health, which is great, and some places have, you know, very quality sort of um, uh, sex uh, ed and, and um, you know, uh, biology in terms of what you eat. And we also have PE, but there's no mental health discussion in our schools. Hmm. All too often, 
you know, it, it, I think that if I had had that sort of a conversation in my school, I would have gone, oh, so you're saying that, you know, this is more normal than I think it is, right? Um, I, I've got someone telling me that there's something wrong with me. And in reality, I'm a teenager who's also on chemicals. Right. But I didn't have that. Right. Wow. So, so I, I graduated high school. Uh, I'm not a good student by any means. In fact, I was a pretty poor student. Um, and I went on to a pretty, pretty great school here in Ohio called the College of Worcester for my freshman year up in Worcester, Ohio. Uh, and that was bad. That was, <laughs> that was a tough time. Um, you know, I, 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 this is where some of these issues really started to flourish. Um, and there I really did start to experiment uh, with everything under the sun. I mean, you name it and I tried it. Um, it was, it was it, mostly because I really, I was bored. I, I came from a private school and even though Worcester is tough, I was overprepared to the point where I knew I didn't need to study that hard. Uh, and then I kind of overcorrected in that respect and ended up basically leaving before I failed out. Um, so freshman year was a very rough time. Um, not in terms of, you know, friends and that sort of thing. I, I had a great time, but I, I rarely went to class and um, definitely was, was struggling pretty hard. And when, when I, I, I left before I failed out, so I came back to Cincinnati where I'm from and went to University of Cincinnati, which is a fantastic school here. And made, again, made a bunch of friends, but, but things started to get worse and worse in terms of what I now know was addiction at the time I thought was mental health issues. Right. Were you still on a lot of prescription medications at the time? Oh my God, you have no idea. Uh, (laughs) So I was still on uh, one, I believe at this time I was on Concerta, which was the the last ADHD medication that I was on. I was on that for a good couple of years. So I'm going to guess that during this period, that's what I was on. I have the, the records. I've actually gone back and read them, and it's fascinating. Wow. Um, but at this time, I was also starting to be prescribed other medications as well. And again, you know, it's the, it's all of your classic sort of mood-stabilizing drugs, or, or what we would call antipsychotics. Right. So it's, it's Ambilify. Um, it's it's um, by the end, when things got really bad in my – I was 23 when I was just – my life fell apart from addiction. Um, but by then I was on, uh, the one that really, really was my kind of, uh, black hole, which was Klonopin. Mm. Um, and, uh, was on lithium and just oh my, so many different kinds oh of drugs. Oh my goodness. Um, I also had a, a minor back injury at this time. And so I was put on some, some prescription painkillers. Now here's where I will say my story diverges. I mean, this is already ridiculous, right? Yeah. I never thank God switched to really hard drugs. I, I was experimenting, but I um, thankfully never tried heroin, um, mostly because I was I was with a bunch of people who were doing heroin, and I went, oh, my God, I want nothing to do with that. Um, I did, I was, by the end, pretty into cocaine, not in the terms of, like, every day, but it was the sort of thing where I was already so messed up on a, on a you know, just an everyday basis that when I wanted to party, I needed something else. And so that was what cocaine became. Um, and by, so, so kind of the backtrack, I, at this point, you know, I'm, I'm 1920. My, my life is still fine. I'm coping with it. Okay. Um, but things are getting pretty bad to the point where my mood is, is erratic and, 
um, people are getting worried, but you know, I, I was just, again, I had this diagnosis that said, this is just who I am. So I believed it. My parents believed it. My, my family, my friends, everyone believed this. And, um, you know, things, things just kept getting worse. And, and we never once thought, God, you know, they're putting me on so many pills. You would think things would get better, but he, there was always the excuse that, well, we got to try something else. We got to up the dosage. Right. Right. There's, so, there's nobody ever looks at the fact like maybe it's the drugs causing the problem. Yep. You yep. know, and and I'll be honest, and 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 I'm just as guilty as that as everyone else. My uh, my dad embarrassingly reminded me not long ago that I was set to get the words bipolar tattooed on my body because I was so convinced that I was sick. Um, and we all just believe. I mean, this therapist is still he's he's a very well respected person in Cincinnati. Um, I've been with him at this point for over 10 years. And, you know, when he tells me something, I believed it. So right. um, things just kept getting worse and worse. And I do have, uh, you know, still uh, a little bit of, of um, obsessive compulsive uh, behaviors that, that flourish in times of stress. And so these were, you know, running me rampant. Um my, my moods were all over the place. I was up and down. Uh, I was erratic and it was just a terrible time. And I went from in my early twenties, let's say 21 or so, um, from having a job, being in school and all that. By the time I'm, I'm in 22, 23, I have nothing. I'm, I'm, you know, basically just waking up, uh, immediately rushing to the bathroom because I'm detoxing, um, and, and popping my first pills for the day just so I can be, awake and not withdrawing. Um, and, and by, I'm sitting on my couch, I'm really not doing much else. And on the job, the only friends I really had that were still with me were the people that I had invited to live with me were also a bunch you know, we were all suffering together. Now, none of us would have called it that obviously. Um, right. we all thought we were having a wonderful time, but it was, it was pretty rough. Um, and that is when, <clears throat> excuse me, I attempted suicide. Um, it was, it was things had gotten so bad that I dumped out a bunch of the pills I was taking, which by that, by the way, at that time I was on over five different pills a day and was prescribed over 1300 milligrams a day in chemicals. Wow. Um, and that isn't even counting what I was taking on top of that because I was abusing every single one of those right. prescriptions. Right. Um, especially clonopin, which I was taking, uh, by definition, I was over the lethal dosage a day of clonopin. I was still taking them. Wow. And what's so sad and, and what is so scary to me now is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I was filling month long prescriptions in 12 days and I have the records. Like I've, I've called the pharmacies and, and did open records requests to get my own uh, records. And they were just filled. My, my, you know, my, my psychiatrist and on behalf of my, psychologist was just filling these things um and so it really is shocking that i didn't die i was gonna uh, say you're lucky that. you're alive jay on that I, uh, and uh, it gets uh, even uh, it gets even harder because i did try to take my life i, I dumped out the pills uh, and I, I was set to over to take them and i called a friend as a sort of living suicide note and luckily for me she texted a couple other friends and, and and let them know what i was going to do so they rushed over to stop me but I learned from that, and the next night I took the pills first and then called her. Right. So uh, she called the police that night, thank God, uh, because they came, and they I, I, I remember very little, but I remember being 
uh, my head slammed into the side of a cop car and being put in the back seat and spending most of that night handcuffed to a bed at UC Hospital. Wow. Wow. Somebody must have been looking over so, your shoulder because you're still here. <laughs> so I am still here. Um, but but it, at that point is when things really started to change. Um, and it wasn't an immediate catalyst. I, I wish that that had been my moment, uh, but it wasn't. I, I, I was sent to a, a, a great facility here called um, the Linder Center of Hope, which is a, a part of UC Hospital uh, for mental for mental health, and they now do a bunch of addiction work as well. But but you know they I, they continued with the, the treatment of sort of a mental health. And when I got out of there, my therapist recommended I go to this place in Massachusetts called um, Austin Riggs in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And it's a well known um, uh, it's, it's a well known place for for mental health and rehabilitation. Uh, and they also do addiction. Uh, they work with people with addiction. And it was there that I really got to know people with mood disorders and with addiction. And I started going, you know, that doesn't look like me when I was when I was talking to other people with mood disorders. I, I, they're wonderful people. We're all struggling together. But their experience wasn't mine. And so it started to make me really think, like, is this me? Um, and I got to know people with it, with who are suffering from addiction and that looked more like what I was going through. Right. So I actually, again, I, I, I got my records from this hospital and I, uh, I can read in my therapist notes, which by the way, for all the other listeners, if you ever want to feel just terrible about yourself, read what a therapist has to say about you when you're at your absolute worst. I can't imagine. Um, it was <laughs> awful. Uh, <laughs> wow. But these records are fantastic because I'm able to look in there and see like the day that I walked into his place. And I've, I've been there now for about two months and I ended up staying for almost three. Um, and I, I actually told him and the records are right there. It says, I want to get off these pills. And, and it's fascinating because he says in his records, he says, I agree with it, but then he hedges his bet and he says, only if the end result is to flush the system and start over with new drugs. Wow. And, that was an absolute no-no for me, <laughs> wow. and thank God I, I was actually in there on my own free will, and so I checked myself out and said, I'm over this. I'm out of here. Right. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah, I want to get off all the drugs. Okay, well, only if you'll get them get off and then get back on something different. It's right. like, what's wrong with that picture? Wow. <laughs> you know, it... it, it I, I will say that I do believe, and, and I know that I'm sure you uh, agree with this and a bunch of your listeners, that the diagnosis or at least the awareness of mental health is one of the best advancements in recent times. But the people that work in this industry are just that. They're people and they're fallible right. and you know, they can make mistakes. And unfortunately, I was one of the ones that it was you know, kind of screwed over. And look, I, I get that these drugs can help a lot of people, but boy, did they not help me. <laughs> right. Well, we could argue that point, but we won't argue that point <laughs> here that they would help anybody. But there you go. But, um, you know, wow, that I'm just, I, I'm speechless with, you know, the amount of drugs that you were on. And then, you know, your ability to finally realize that that was more the issue than some sort of mental disorder, which is kind of what I was alluding to when you were a teenager. <laughs> it's like, right. yeah, I'm sure those drugs made you pretty moody. So it's, it's, a, it's awesome that you were able to spot that. 
Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook. We have a page by the same name. We also have a new email address, which is the addiction podcast at yahoo.com. That's the addiction podcast at yahoo.com. For more information on Narcan on Suncoast, call 1 339 3324. That's 1 339 3324. Do you have a loved one struggling with drug addiction and you've tried everything to help them and failed? We recently discovered that Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-866-989-4499 today and say podcast and get a 10% discount. That's 1-866-989-4499. Don't forget to say the word podcast. And this service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So, that, okay, so you left this facility then because obviously they weren't, they weren't going to help you get completely clean and sober. So what did you do then? Well, then... There weren't that many people in my life who, who thought this was a good idea. And look, I don't blame them. You know, if you've been told one thing by a trusted, you know, family confidant therapist for, for now almost 15 years and you're, you're you know, the, the, the patient that you think is having these issues decides something else, <laughs> would you believe them? Uh, so um, I, luckily, I have a grandmother who is just an absolute saint of a woman. Um, she is still one of my best friends today. Um, and she was, she and and my grandfather were living in Sedona, Arizona at the time. So I checked myself out and I went, uh, she agreed to take me in. So I set out driving cross country. Uh, it was actually in a car accident in New York city. I was fine, but my car was banged up and I was like, I'm going to drive anyway. You know, being, I was like, I got to get out of here. And my car finally broke down for good in a town called Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, (laughs) and at that point, at that point, I, I always I include that in my uh, in every time I talk about this because it was in Johnstown that I finally had my quote unquote rock bottom moment. Uh, I was sitting in a hotel room. It was it was Jan- January second of two thousand ten. I was sitting in my my dirty truck stop motel room because nothing else is open. It's January second, um, and I, I was eating pop tarts for dinner because the gas station was literally the only place I could get food. And I finally went. You know what? If this is going to change, it's on me. I got to do this. Wow. Uh, and I made a commitment to myself that night that I was going to put my own recovery on my back and I was going to get better. Uh, and so because of that, I will never forget Johnstown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> How uh, bad? <laughs> so I, I, ended up, uh, I ended up renting a car and driving back again to my, my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, where I got a plane ticket to Arizona to be with my grandmother, who put up with me. And she was my best friend, my cheerleader, my nurse, my therapist for the next four months. Um, I was on so many pills that I couldn't just stop taking them. The combined withdrawal would have literally killed me. That's right. So I, it, it took me months to get off these, just a little bit each day, getting down and down and down to the point where I was cutting pills, you know, into quarters and just taking a little bit. 
And then I finally stopped in the spring of 2010. I was able to, to quit. Um, and I haven't taken, you know, besides taking aspirin when I have a headache, I haven't taken prescription or any pills since. Wow. That's, a, that's, that's an unbelievable story. I mean, just that right there that you were able to step, step down. And I, we know, cause we've talked about this on the podcast before that you have to step down on some of those drugs, because as you say, if you try to go into immediate withdrawal, you can die. Right. So you yep. were, you were and the- I, I, I was very lucky that I, I cannot say this enough. I, I, I've got to give her one more shout out that my grandma is just an incredible woman. And I actually choke up every time I think about her because if it wasn't for her, I honestly believe I wouldn't be here. And mm. it, it was thanks to her allowing me to, to withdraw in, in her spare bedroom. Uh, and just, you know, one day that it was literally, I couldn't leave the bed. And the next day it was, we were sitting on the couch watching Ellen together and then, it was walking to the end of the block to get the mail with her. And then it was going out to get food and just slowly rehabbing me as a person. Wow. What a great, what a great story. And and you're going to have to make sure your grandmother listens to this podcast. Cause I think she'll be super oh, duper proud of you. I know she's proud <laughs> of you, but wow. And so that was spring of 2010. So you've been clean and sober yep. now for nine years. Yeah. So I, um, I still had, as I'm sure you know, and all your listeners know, when, when you stop, you don't you don't just kind of come out of your egg like, and I'm back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's still a long okay. process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I honestly do believe that, you know, those couple of months or three, four months of, of, of going through withdrawal were physically and like in anguish the hardest time of my life. But the next like, oh man, let's say three years were actually the hardest time because, you know, when I was suffering, I, I, I felt awful. My life was awful, but I didn't, I couldn't comprehend that. You right. know, I, I was in it. Um, but afterwards rebuilding all of those bridges. Now you like, have to confront it all without the benefit of drugs. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Tough. So that was, that was the hardest part. And, and it was, it was everything. I mean, I, I had stopped talking to my family for the most part because, um, you know, it, it, I, mean, I, I don't need to explain what addiction does to the brain. Uh, and, and so I definitely was not thinking clearly and it was just, it was awful. And so I had to regain their trust and, and show them that I was, I was back and then kind of return to the friends that who really had no idea what had happened. They just knew that I was gone all of a sudden. Right. Um, and, and the ones that I did wrong, I had to, to make amends with. And uh, I had to get back into school because I, I had lost the ability to go to school. And um, it wasn't – so that was spring of 2010. In, in December – on December 15th of 2012, uh, I finally graduated. I was, I was the oldest person in my class. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was 20 – I would have been 26 by then. Okay. Um, and Which isn't terribly old, but – you know, I was also at that point, I was, I was on my fourth school. Uh, cause I kept trying, <laughs> um, but, but I got it. And, and I, I celebrated so much as I walked across that stage at Northern Kentucky university that they still use pictures of me with my arms raised in celebration to celebrate graduation every year. Wow. Uh, every year I get texts from people who work on campus like, Hey, look, it's Jay again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it was like the most excitement they'd ever seen. Uh, when someone walking across that stage, um, and I, I, I got job, you know, I, I got a, a basically a restaurant job and then turned that into something else and something else. And 
now I've, I've had a successful career and, um, I, even better in my, in my opinion, of course, she'll, she'll agree was, uh, on the six year grad or anniversary of my graduation, I, uh, I got married last year on December 15th of 2018. Hey, well um, done you. Yeah. And she's my everything. I mean, she's the most supportive person in the world. Um, and she, she, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot, a lot of long conversations about what addiction looks like and about how, you know, what my, my own personal recovery and self, uh, preservation looks like. And, and, you know, she is the, my number one, my number one cheerleader. That, you know, that's awesome. And that's, that's huge that you have her there to support you. Now, do you guys have kids yet? We don't. Well, we, we do have a dog. We, we <laughs> actually rescued a dog a week ago today. Oh, wow. Um, her name is, her name is Nell. She's wonderful. We, um, we are starting to have the kid conversation and mom, when you're listening to this, you, I know you'll be happy to hear that. Uh, well, you and... know, the reason why I ask you that, I'm sorry to cut you off, but the reason why I ask you that Please. Jay is because you are going to be, um, so much wiser as a parent and, you know, <laughs> I don't fault your parents for, you know, uh, agreeing for you to go on these different drugs and things, because when when you're frustrated as a parent or there's something you don't understand about your child and you have authority and someone that you trust telling you that this medication is going to help your child. I mean, every parent wants to help their child. Um, I was fortunate enough that my kids were able to go to private schools that had kind of a different viewpoint on ADHD and the creativity that is inherent in a lot of children. And so I was not put in that position. But I think that you and your wife, because you've lived it, you know, you're going to be a much more educated parent in terms of some of these uh, mind-altering substances that often are prescribed or I will say over-prescribed to children. I could not be happier that you made that point. And, and two, two things to say with that. First, I also agree with you. I do not in any way fault my parents. I, I want to make that perfectly clear. I am very sure that before this experience, I would have done the exact same thing. Right. So um, I completely agree. And second, it, actually not long ago, I'm having um, lunch with it with a good friend of mine who has a seven year old. And he said, you know, uh, his son was having some problems in school and they were, uh, the, the, the school recommended them to a great counselor who he thought was going to be very behavioral um, heavy. And the counselor said, look, we can put him on Ritalin. His son is seven. Yep. Uh, and he obviously said, no, thank God. But he yep. said, look, you know, I know. And he's telling me this because obviously he knows that this is something I can relate to, but he said, I know that I can make that choice and just, you know, work with my son and love my son and do everything that he needs to help, help him get better. But he said, what about other parents? What about other parents who are, don't have the time that I have to dedicate? What if they say yes? And their seven year old gets right. put on these drugs. That's not the youngest Jay. They're putting way I, younger I, kids on those I, drugs. I'm telling you way younger. And it's terrifying. It's ter it is absolutely terrifying because as you know, again, because you lived it, you know, Ritalin acts as a depressant on a young child and the minute they hit pu puberty it becomes um it becomes uh what am I trying to say? Oh, a stimulant and then you have to give right. another drug to counteract the the effects of the it, it, 
I Googled it one time and found a woman whose um, teenage son was on six different meds and I, I couldn't I couldn't confront Googling it again. But the point is that those those particular drugs, when they're given to a child, then when the child reaches puberty, then you, you have to change them out and, you know, and add other things in there. But yeah, it, it's happening with much, much younger children and it is absolutely terrifying and it's it's just not what we need in this society. It's not. I, I definitely agree that putting, putting you know, single-digit kids on very serious drugs is probably not, not in any way a good thing. Well, it just isn't. You know, they're, they're mind-altering drugs, and truth be told, those who prescribe them don't honestly know what the result is going to be of that particular drug. And, um, yeah, they alter the mind, they're mind altering, you know, this is a tangent and we don't have to go down this road, but you know, you hear, um, periodically about some horrific shooting in some public place and one for one, the people who do those shootings are on one or more of these medications. And because they don't know how it's going to affect an individual, it may, Calm you know, them down, and then it may not. What What is so interesting, I think, is is that uh, you're right that there isn't a lot of of evidence here, at least in 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 terms of the long term studies that are have been done in other respects. What is fascinating to me is that my generation, again, I'm I'm about to be 33, so think of kind of the older millennials and younger generation. What is that? Uh, why I don't know, but. It, when, when, in 1996, I just looked this up not long ago, there were 1.3 million prescriptions filled annually for drugs specifically targeted at ADHD. And by 1999, just three years later, that number was 6 million. Yep. So they were doing studies, but they were doing them in real time. Right. Well, you know why that is, don't you? I want to hear your opinion. It's all about the money. <laughs> it's all about the money. The pharmaceutical companies make a fortune on these drugs. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors get kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, and, you know, we're definitely learning a lot about that sort of action with the Sackler family and, and you know, now we're with the opioid epidemic. But, um, you know, I definitely think that it, it, it sort of kind of going in this direction. My opinion is that we spend too much time thinking about, you know, the act, the current drug that is making headlines, which is right now heroin and not enough about addiction and mental health, period. That's right. And because of that, we missed the next wave. I mean, literally, in my, in my Cincinnati newspaper this morning, um, there was a, a story, a headline about how in the last uh, 48 hours, there was a wave of overdoses, and it actually said experts are stumped. Experts <laughs> aren't stumped. They're not stumped. It's, it's over, overdosing because of fentanyl. Like, we know that. Yeah. But What's to stump? There, I mean... <laughs> I, I don't understand. And, and, what's, what's, and we're right in the middle of this. I mean, Ohio, especially in my southwest Ohio, northern Kentucky area, is in the top five of both meth and heroin. We are ground zero for this, and there is not enough being done here. That's right. That's right. And I will tell you something else that is one of the most scary things that I have learned doing this podcast, because I interviewed a gentleman who went up to Atlanta when the American Psychiatric Association was having their convention. And there is a definite push on the part of psychiatry as a profession to label addiction as a brain disease. Because if you do that, there is only one way to treat it. 
and that is with another drug. Now, you mm. already know that to treat a drug addiction with a drug is insane, but that's the push. If they can get it labeled a brain disease, they can say the only valid treatment is substitute one drug for another. Well, I think we are definitely living in the era now where things are, you know, I actually had this conversation not long ago with it with a, a man who runs a treatment center here who said that, in his opinion, you know, if if um, what is if what is able to be done for addiction and mental health is a hundred percent, we're at ten percent. Right. Uh, we are we are just not doing enough, but we're doing a little bit more each day. And I really hope that takes a strong leap forward here sometime soon because it needs to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I will tell you something that when individuals such as yourself who, you know, go through what you went through and come out the other side clean and sober, and you know, you've heard Jason, my co-host, and I talk about this, like Narconon, where he works, Narconon doesn't use drugs to get people off of drugs. And so when someone comes through the Narconon program, they are drug free. They're not on methadone. They're not on Suboxone. They're not smoking marijuana. They're not doing Kratom. They are completely drug and alcohol free. And you are evidence that 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 can that that can happen. You are you're 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 a sober and clean individual. And so when you tell a story like your story, you give hope to a lot of people listening to this podcast. And I think I can't, I can't, I can't thank you enough because that is so unbelievably valuable to what we're trying to do. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, if I can literally my number one goal in life right now is to help everyone understand that no matter what your personal addiction is, because there's many of, you know, we, there are so many people that struggle from different you know, substance uses of substance of abuse. It doesn't matter what it is. You can do this. That's right. Right. I mean, there is not a single substance of abuse that is a death sentence unless, I mean, obviously there's overdoses, but there's not a single one that if you are on it, there is no hope. That's right. And, and, and you mentioned fentanyl and we even had a nurse on the podcast, whose whose drug of choice was fentanyl? So even I remember that that was a fascinating episode. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and she's clean and sober. Okay, so you, what you're saying is exactly what we try and ding in every single time we do this podcast, and that is basically just that something can be done about it, and you can get clean and sober, and there is hope available, and there's help available. There's so many people that have come through it and want nothing more than to help you get through it. So I, I, that's right. And can I, can I, can I make an addendum to that point as well, which is that no matter how many bridges you've burned. And like I said earlier, I burned almost all of them. There's someone there. You just got, you, you just got to reach out that right. there is somebody who's going to be there for you. And luckily for me, in my case, it was, it was my angel of a grandmother, <laughs> but uh, everyone's got someone, even if you think you don't, there's somebody there. That's right. That's exactly right. And you just have to reach out. That's the first step. That's so the first step. So you've given so many good messages here, but I'm going to, I always ask my interviewees, like if you could just give one may, main message out to all of the yeah. listeners of the podcast, give it to them. So I would say that because I, I think, you know, 
um, what what is so amazing about your listenership is that it, it, it crosses a vast uh, spectrum of people who relate to addiction, but probably many of them are people like me who are in recovery and people who are family members of people suffering. And that is uh, fantastic. We need resources that bring everybody together like that. So again, thank you so much for this podcast. Thank you for all you do. But for everybody listening, just it's such a it's such it's such a hashtag. It's so cheesy of spread love. But <laughs> yeah. the, the people the people who are suffering currently, you know that that first step to reach out it is very very hard to do. Yep. So if you see somebody suffering, I carry Narcan with me every day. If you see somebody su- suffering, do what you can because you have no idea. Maybe you do. And I, I, if you do, if you've been where you know I have been, you know. But for some of those other people who don't. You have no idea just how low some of these people are and how much they're suffering. So reach out, spread love, and, and you know, just you know, go with kindness. Great message. Great message. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you, and thank you for, for all you're doing to help. Absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I thought it was super fascinating. We have touched on um, psychiatric medications before, but this is a uh, a different story than the ones we've um, featured here on the podcast. Um, kudos to Jay for making his way off of these drugs. Um, as he mentioned, you can't cold turkey off of a lot of these psychiatric medications and you have to actually step down. Um, you know, another thing is for parents who are listening, you know, you really need to question doctors or officials or anybody that tells you that your child has ADHD and you need to start medicating them. It is, um, it's a road that I don't think you're going to want to go down and you want to make sure that you fully research whatever medications the doctor is recommending for your young child. And also, Research if there are alternative solutions. I We have had on the podcast Pamela Seafeld, who is a pharmacist, and she can help with a lot of these, you know, quote unquote, you know, brain issues or brain chemical issues or what have you with um, essential oils, uh, vitamins, minerals. So there are alternative solutions to a lot of what you might be experiencing with your child. I would say if you have, you know, gotten your child on some of these medications, you might want to find an alternative medicine doctor who can help you come up with some other ideas. Because as you can hear, as you heard from Jay's story, it can lead you down a road that um, you probably don't want your child to go down. Next week, um, hopefully Jason will be back in the studio with me and we have some other interviews coming up. So stay tuned, get help, know that there is hope and we will talk to you again. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 